0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. Our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. This is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. If you're like me, chances are you're a cookbook junkie. On my bookshelves you'll find dozens of titles, dog-eared and marked with notes, and food stains from decades of use. A good cookbook is indispensable but its significance can go well beyond the kitchen. On this week's show, we're looking at cookbooks from the past and the present, examining their value as cultural artifact and biographical portrait. We begin at Kitchen Witch in New Orleans, a store specializing in rare and used cookbooks. With their shop scheduled to close soon, owners Debbie Lindsay and Philippe La Mancusa look back on two decades of business and some of their biggest sellers then we dig into our archives to hear about a groundbreaking 1978 publication that was as much political statement as cookbook the late civil rights activist and author Rudy Lombard tells us the story of Creole Feast a cookbook that ennobled the lives of the black chefs who went largely unrecognized as they created the canon of New Orleans Creole classics Finally, we visit with the authors of two of my favorite cookbooks from 2018, Chasing the Gator by Isaac Toops and Jennifer Cole, and Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food by Nick Sharma. Both authors write about what they know best. Isaac covers Cajun food his way, while Nick shares his life's delicious journey as an Indian immigrant in America. We've got lots more than just a good recipe in store on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: Hi, my name is
0: Debbie Lindsay.
2: And I'm Philippe Lamancusa, and we own the Kitchen Witch Cookbook Store.
0: Kitchen Witch Cookbooks is a New Orleans gem offering a striking collection of rare and vintage titles in a vibrant, inviting space, the shop perfectly reflects our city's eclectic and culinary tastes. It's also only one of a handful of bookstores in the U.S. dedicated primarily to cookbooks. Sadly, after two decades in business, owners Debbie Lindsay and Philippe La Mancusa have announced that they will soon be closing their doors. Oh, we're sad, too.
1: (laughs) It's been uh, 20 years, and um, personally I'm not ready to let it go, but it's just not pulling its own
0: weight monetarily. Kitchen Witch, like so many independent bookstores, has been squeezed from multiple directions, including online retail and technology. Before they close their doors for good, I wanted to stop by one last time to talk with Debbie and Philippe about their 20 years in business. We settled down in three comfy chairs surrounded by their collection of some 10,000 cookbooks.
2: People that walk in here for the first time, they're amazed at how grounded and comfortable we feel and how calming it is in here. But what's not to be calming about when you're surrounded by books? The cookbooks here, they're like friends to us, and we introduce them to people. Like, we always have Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking. We always have MFK Fishers' The Art of Eating. We have to have it. And when a person comes in and they're interested, you know, we pull out one of our friends and we introduce them to one of our friends, introduce them to a book called The Bialy Eaters, introduce them to the book Georgian Feast by Dara Goldstein. Georgian food will blow your mind Uh, mastering the art of French cooking. We have to have it. But then when I show them that I show them Julia Child and company and Julia Child cooks with with chefs and Julia Child does this and we expand their horizons and that's gratifying. When I first started selling cookbooks, I would take it to heart that one of my books was leaving. And Debbie said to me, but that's the business you're in. And then I realized when I sold a cookbook, I could buy another one. (laughs) (laughs) So so I would then be able to be a businessman and sell my cookbooks and then sneak away and find another cookbook to buy and bring it back because I now I had an excuse to buy another cookbook because I was going to sell it again. Increasing
0: inventory, yes. And now we're
2: up to 10,000 cookbooks, yes.
0: yes. <laughs> Philip, how did The Kitchen Witch start in the first place?
2: When I retired from being a chef in 1999, I was living in San Francisco, and I, my daughter was living with me, and I was just in the process of opening up another restaurant for another set of investors and I started giving her the wow wow. Well she was nineteen at the time. I started giving her the wow wow that I didn't know that man in the, the mirror and I had worked the last ten weeks, fourteen hour days without a day off, and she just put up her hand and said, Stop. You know, you've always talked about going back to New Orleans and opening a cookbook store and retiring. And now's the time to do it. And so we packed up 5,000 cookbooks and we drove back to New Orleans and we found a place on Rampart Street and that's how we opened it. It was P. Lamancusa and Daughters, 1214 North Rampart. Uh, and we uh, took that through incarnations, had to close for a spell because there's the whole thing about businesses is that once you realize that you're not making any money and consistently you're having, I had to be working other jobs to keep the bookstore open, which means Debbie would come in And she would keep the bookstore open while I was out working. And then what's the point?
1: As I tell people, I was girlfriend, uh, babysitting the shop when he was chefing somewhere, working like, you know, 50 plus hours a week. Then, as he said, it closed for a spell and was just kind of retired to the house. 5,000 books. After Katrina, we came back. Everything was still fine, dry. Nothing looted. So he gets this bright idea to find a place in the quarter to open up. And he comes home one night. I found a place. Do you want to go into business with me and reopen the kitchen, witch? And I'm like, hell no. It was right after Katrina. I just, you know, we were all kind of post-traumatic, screwy, you know. But the next day, we looked at the space. I got the world's smallest bank loan and uh, with his amazing collection, we opened a bookstore.
0: On Toulouse Street, that was such a charmed location. You all were there for many years. Tell me about your customers. I love
1: tourists, and I really got to love tourists with shop. Certain restaurants I've worked in and bars, yeah, you know, sometimes you just want to throttle people. But the folks that would come into the shop were culturally and and culinarily curious, and they were like the leisure traveler. And they wanted to talk and listen and look around and take something tangible home with them. And we have become friends with so many people that started out a stranger from God knows where they found us or stumbled upon us, and then you build a friendship. I mean, from from movie stars to uh, a homeless fellow who um, would come in to buy music <laughs> to um, some crazies, a lot of shoplifters. Oh, got to know some shoplifters. Oh, but it was a, a really interesting, array, But mostly just really lovely customers.
2: See, we have... A couple that has a um, construction company down in Ocala, Florida, they just come in and say, "What do you have for me?" And I have books that I that I'll have in stock that I'll be just kind of saving, squirrel away. We have a man that comes in from New York; He's family, he's an employee, and, and we have Australians that come back every year. We're we're holding together the hospitality industry. We are the hospitality industry because when they walk through the door, they say. Amazon can't give you hugs. We get hugs at Kitchen Witch. And they don't care to get a recipe from a website. They want to come in and they want to buy a book. And sometimes they don't even know what book they want to buy. They just want to buy a book. So what do you got? And, and we sell them books. And that's one thing that, that I question. I, I go to people's houses now you don't see books. When I was growing up, people had bookshelves. And when you go, like Our Lady Across the Street from where we live, you walk into her house, you go into the kitchen, there are shelves of cookbooks. She's kind of like the older school. Some of these younger people, they don't want to be burdened by that amount of pages. And so they are reading on Kindle. And I can understand how that is comfortable and, and convenient. But then there's the people that come in here that want to hold a book in their hand. I'm one of those people, you know, that I need to hold a book. I got in a book two weeks ago. It was a technical culinary book from a culinary school that came through, and I looked at the price on the back. It was a $75 book, and I thought, $75, now what can I charge? I want to charge enough to sell but I don't want to charge so little that it can be resold I went on to to line the book sells for $7.70 with free shipping how do you compete we know at least four major booksellers online and they're selling for what we would have like 10 cents on the dollar Mm -hmm. we can't afford to sell books and we know people are cooking we see people in grocery stores they're in the produce section they're taking things off the shelves They're buying food to cook at home, but they're not buying books to read. And so when we left the French Quarter, our business dropped by two-thirds because we didn't have the traffic of the people that were coming by that were looking and seeing Kitchen Witch cookbooks.
1: And tourists really get small businesses. They research, they read books and guidebooks and Google, and we and other small businesses pop up because we're kind of been blessed with some publicity and we're just kind of funky and different. Locals, not just New Orleanians, I think probably every city is guilty of this. The locals do not search their city as if they were looking for an experience. They get in their car on the way home from work. They go hit Rouse's. It's convenient. You know, they bypass Terranova's. You know, uh, the small places that need a little kickback from their uh, shopping budget. I wonder how many New Orleanians know about the House of Dance and Feathers down in the lower nine. If they didn't read Nine Lives or follow, you know, Indian and second line culture, they wouldn't know about it. Tourists know, I mentioned it to someone that, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to take an Uber down there. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Oh, we already went. It was wonderful. Like, they know the city better than locals.
0: So, what's going to happen with the collection that's grown to 10,000 books? And are you going to be gone by September? Oh,
2: yeah. Were we putting things on sale? more deeper cuts and deeper cuts and then at the end it's all going to charity whatever's left here
1: yeah, no no book every book will get a forever home but we would love it if we could like give them a good home with a degree of um shopping enthusiasm behind it
2: do you know anybody that wants 10 years of Savoir magazine <laughs> 10 years of Savoir each They're one is I, I, I would like to just have them and read them it's like that how am, I, how am I going to stop buying cookbooks? That's the question. <laughs> how, am, how, how do I stop buying cookbooks?
0: Thank you all so much for such an important contribution you made to the
2: culinary scene
0: in New Orleans. Thank you.
2: Well, we're hoping that maybe we were ahead of our time and possibly when we look around, in, because New Orleans is going to be home forever, when we look around for you know, ten years from now, we'll see somebody another young couple opening up a cookbook store and we'll think, Oh bless their hearts. Yes.
1: <laughs> oh thank you, Poppy. I yeah, we're gonna miss this something fierce.
0: Debbie Lindsay and Philippe Lamancusa of Kitchen Witch Cookbooks. After a short break, we delve into our archives to hear the late Rudy Lombard talk about his 1978 cookbook classic, Creole Feast. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter. Dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pimm's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm mufaladas all-day dining, and private events at 500 Charter Street. In 1978, Rudy Lombard wrote the seminal work on Creole cooking, his book, Creole Feast. Between the pages of Creole Feast, the world finally met the black men and women who shaped New Orleans' renowned Creole food. Virtually all of the 16 people profiled began their careers as dishwashers, honing their crafts through the years by learning from those that came before them. Not only did Rudy write the first cookbook about American chefs, but with the spirit of a civil rights activist, he elevated the hand that stirred the pot, awarding them the professional status so richly deserved and so long overdue. Sadly, Rudy Lombard passed away in 2014. Here he is in 2012, telling the story of his book, Creole Feast. So, Rudy, in 1978, you published your seminal work on Creole cooking, Creole Feast. How did you come to write that book?
3: Well, a couple of years before that, I was involved in an urban planning study called uh, Claiborne Avenue Design Team, and we were coming up with a study to revitalize the culture of downtown New Orleans along Claiborne Avenue. And I made a statement. I said, everything that was unique about New Orleans could be traced to the black presence in this city, whether it was music, whether it was carnival, whether it was architecture, and I said, and food. So I could name names of African Americans who were prominent in all these areas of the history and culture of New Orleans. But when I said food... I realized I couldn't name names. I just knew that there were blacks cooking in all of the great restaurants in New Orleans. And so I started to ask people about, well, who cooks over here and who cooks over there? And there's a great musician by the name of Freddie Coleman, and he was a drummer here for years and years and years. And he knew uh, Warren LaRuth. So we went to see Warren, and I, re- I said, who's the greatest chef in New Orleans? And he didn't hesitate. He, did, he said, hands down, Nathaniel Burton. So who was Nathaniel Burton? Nathaniel Burton was a black man who started out in New Orleans as a dishwasher. He, you know, he washed dishes in a lot of these restaurants. And when the chef uh, would get sick or something, he taught himself how to cook. And by the time I met him, he had been, you know, an executive chef at Commander's Palace, And I met him, he was the executive chef at Bruce Mm Hart's, you see, he trained at least 56 other chefs. Wow. Okay, so he said, he's the godfather of all of the chefs, blacks or white.
0: It it was really like that old apprentice system back then. Exactly.
3: So I called him, and I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, let's do it. Okay, and so he started telling me all of the chefs he had trained. We 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 settled on fifteen. We could have put a lot more. It's
0: so amazing. Um. Nowadays, you know, everybody knows who the chef is in the restaurant. That's the thing that. But in those days, right. they, the, the chef
3: was almost invisible, wasn't he? Well, I my argument is that the Creole Feast is the first cookbook in America about chefs. Before that time, the country raved about french chefs
4: Mm -hmm.
3: there was no books no books printed at that time about american chefs let's
0: talk about the photographs now in creole feast the photographs of the chefs were very innovative at that time Mm. each one is such a personal portrait of that chef how did that come to be in the book well,
3: that's attributable I, I to the talent and the the vision, the perception of Wayne Miller, who was in charge of design of the book, and Frank Lotzmiller, who was a photographer at the time, Frank and his wife. So the aesthetic of that book was, was an interaction between myself and them, and they had some really ingenious ideas. And as you notice, there's no pictures of food in that book no
0: food photography at all right
3: but not that frank wasn't gifted at that because he was but what we wanted to do is focus on the people so we were bringing together the image of those black people with those fancy names and fancy gourmet restaurants, so that there'd be no question about who was cooking the food and as i can tell you for instance that that picture on the original cover says everything you need to know about Mr. Burton. He's an authoritative, strong, you know, introspective person. and with a little
0: tinge of arrogance about it. Uh, the, the, the photograph of Austin Leslie with right. those big, Austin, meaty yeah. forearms and those, those ham hocks of hands that he's got.:
3: You would never meet more kind, generous loving people than the men and women in that book and austin is the epitome of that him and leah chase and they loved each other too so they supported each other will amazed i went to will and she was you know she was reticent to give up any recipes you know she was she had her own remarkableness she would tell a writer i don't want you to put my name in the papers about my address or my phone number. I just wanna. I just wanna, I the, just wanna <laughs> feed my regulars. Whoever, whoever heard of a city where a, a chef in <laughs> a major restaurant didn't want any advertising? <laughs> what I am thankful for to the great Almighty God was that we did this at a time when we captured the aesthetics of culinary arts in New Orleans, many of which have now disappeared.
0: Rudy. Where are the young black Creole chefs of the 21st century?
3: I think they're coming up at a time when, uh, you know, they want to cook like the people who can make money, you know. Um, And there are a lot of black chefs around the country, but they cook in the the kind of nouveau style. Random House asked me if I wanted to reprise the Creole feast. I'm not interested in, you know, necessarily... uh, doing a second or third volume. I would rather, my ego is not invested in the repetition of more and more kinds of Creole feasts. I'm quite happy to turn it over to a younger generation. And I thank God for the opportunity to put on the record the genius and the skills of the people who are mentioned in that book. I missed a few, and I regret that. But uh, nothing is perfect. I did the best I could. Well, you
0: did a great, and I, and great I prayed job. For rain, so. <laughs> the late Rudy Lombard, civil rights activist, cookbook author, and keeper of the Creole cooking flame.
5: Every day, long about noon, oh, how I'm dreaming of a day. I'll be home soon. Back
0: in 2016, we discovered just how much the camera loves Chef Isaac Toops when he was voted fan favorite on Bravo Network's Top Chef. Now, readers with a taste for Cajun cooking love him, too. That's right. Fans who have long searched for Isaac's recipes now have the chance to peruse his very first cookbook. Chasing the Gator. The book was a collaborative effort between Isaac and acclaimed food writer Jennifer Cole, and it's much more than a book of recipes. It's a culinary memoir of Isaac's one-of-a-kind Cajun upbringing.
6: I'm blessed to have the family that I have, you know, mother being a prairie Cajun, father being a coastal Cajun. Didn't really realize the upbringing I had until later on realizing that I had this wonderful upbringing of multicultural phenomenon that is Cajun and just immersed in it and steeped in it. And we did things that were normal to me but are not normal to other people. You know, not everybody goes hunting or fishing on the weekends and throws tomahawks or have pig roast. That's actually not very common at all, Um, especially outside of South Louisiana. And then you move to other places and you talk to other people going, oh, you guys didn't do that? Oh, weird. What does your mom cook? Your mom doesn't cook? (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, so I had this upbringing. I didn't start cooking professionally, as you know, until I was 21. But before that, I could chuck oysters faster than most chefs could. And I knew how to boil crawfish and cook meats and smoke meats. And I could hunt a deer, skin it, and then prepare it that night. And that's pretty unique, apparently. Well, I want to talk to you about
0: this book. And it's billed as the new Cajun cooking I'd like you to tell me, what's the new frontier?
6: Uh, the new frontier, you know, and that's kind of a loose terminology. It's it's basically what I've been doing to it. What have I been doing to the Cajun food? So you've got recipes in there like cracklins and dirty rice and gumbo, of course. But you also have things that aren't necessarily Cajun that i have kind of turned Cajun. So I, I'm always one to venture out and to get new things and to try... Our local produce and our local seafood bounties and animals just in a a different light, if you will. I call it contemporary Cajun because I can't think of better names for stuff. Uh, (laughs) So what does a Cajun boy do, born and raised in Rain, Louisiana, working for Chef Emerald for 10 years? And with the bounty of things that I can get in New Orleans and the techniques that I've picked up on, what what does the Cajun boy do with all that food? Well, he does exactly what I'm doing. Contemporary Cajun, new Cajun food, call it what you want. But it's fine dining mentality, old school thoughts, modern ingredients and techniques all put together in my restaurants and in this book. So you kind of get a taste of the old school and you get the story of how it came about. But more importantly, how is it evolving? And it's continuously evolving.
0: Again and again, I see that very highly refined French food and French technique appearing in a Cajun guys. Would I be right in thinking that maybe Rion is a dish of yours that follows that thread?
6: That's probably one of the most exact French things I do. So I found the Rions in an old French cookbook, and of course, a really old cookbook. Of course, it just said caramelized pork belly in the oven with red wine and sugar. No temperature, no amounts. That was it. I'm like, okay. Uh, So I literally just sugar, red wine, hot oven, stirred it a lot. Oh my God, this is delicious. It literally happened like that. They didn't even add salt to it. So I add salt to it now in fresh time. And of course I've refined the technique to make him even better and better. But it was one of those things like, well, this is, if it's going to be old school French and not Cajun, this is definitely the dish.
0: You know, I have long, long been a lover of your first restaurant, Toops Meadery. How long has Toops been around now? Seven years. Oh, my goodness. Well, It's been a
6: blur, Poppy. It's, it's been a blur. It's
0: been a blast, a blessing, a blessing of a blur. So that is where I came to love your Rion. As a matter of fact, I fell in love with you the first time I ever saw the quote of what you dreamed for your new restaurant to be. You said... You wanted a place where people could come and eat foie gras in their shorts. And that is one of my favorite phrases I've ever heard. Foie gras in my shorts. I love that idea. And Isaac Toops, you sure know what to do with some foie gras.
6: It's one of my favorite ingredients. It really is. I mean it's 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 almost cliché for a chef to love foie gras. It's, it's it's pure fat with some liver in it. Why why would you not like it? But I really do love it and that's why it's going to be on on my menus. For time being. I'm going to the James Beard house in a couple of weeks and I put foie gras in hogshead cheese. Foie gras fromage de tete. It's I've never heard it done before. I've done it before. It comes out absolutely fantastic. It's where the classical French Cajun meat. You know, you got you got refined technique, you got Cajun mentality. And proper ingredients, and then you you come up with something like foie gras fromage de tête.
0: Well, what really tickles me is that you have just come clean with us, and every one of those classic dishes that we have all come to love, first at the meadery and now at Toop South, you gave up the recipes. We can make it at home. Good luck. But ex- <laughs> Thank you, because that's exactly <laughs> what I said. I said to myself, oh, Rion. At home, and then I read the recipe, and I said, Morion at the meadery.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the thing. I've I've always given out my recipes. I really always never never this articulate, never this nice of a book. But anytime someone would want to ask, "How do you make the Krakens? and I would tell them, and they would call me and said they didn't come out right. I'm like, I know. That's why I told you because I knew even though it's a very simple recipe, and a lot of these recipes are very simple. Sometimes getting you're looking at chicken hearts right now. You can maybe get chicken hearts, but the recipes aren't that difficult. They are particular. Me and Jennifer got together and really put our effort into making sure it was a legible and written in a way that you could approach. And if you were adventurous and could get some of these uh, weird ingredients, you can make anything in this book.
0: Your book is laid out in a different way than I've seen cookbooks in the past. It's so personal. That's one of the things that really makes me love this and the whole story's in here. We go from the boucherie to the community table to the fish camp and the hunt camp. So why did you want your book to roll out like this?
6: Um, again, I can't. Uh, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Jennifer Cole came up with the idea. Instead of normal chapters, we separate into the events, and I, which I immediately loved because I didn't have a better answer for that. Because the first came up, well, how do we want to section this off into chapters? and? and It's like an obvious question, but I didn't think to ask it because I've never written a book before. So luckily we had professionals around us that says, okay, you need chapters. Like, Oh, yeah, that that makes sense. And she just came up with that idea. And I thought, that's the best idea I've ever heard of.
0: You know, you're one of my favorite radio guests. We've made some really fun radio in the past. But I was very surprised to finally read in print a story you told me a long time ago. That wild hunting tale about the rabbit.
6: The Doc Holiday rabbit. The best shot ever made. I love that one.
0: When you win a James Beard award, I think you should insist that Amanda carry that rabbit purse to the awards with you.
6: I'm going to insist as well. We'll see how far that goes. <laughs> she hasn't taken that purse outside the house.
0: Why did you call the book Chasing the Gator?
6: Chasing the Gator, um, you know, again, I'm not great at naming things. But it made sense once you started to think about it. It says, like, I'm the Gator. I'm always chasing flavors. That's that's me. I, I want the next thing. I'm never satisfied with the food I have. I want it to be better. I want to taste new things. I like to go to the different international markets and eat new food. I like to travel and eat new things, prepared in different ways. I'm always looking for the next thing. What's what's what am I gonna taste next? That's gonna like, oh that's new. I wanna make it. That's that's what excites me as a chef. It's what excites me as a human. I mean I live to eat. I really do. It's my favorite thing to do. I, mean, I don't have other <laughs> hobbies. Me and my wife go out, and we want to eat new food all the time. Get, I'm making myself hungry just thinking about it. And also, like a gator, I'm perfectly happy to just sit there on a the log and sun. But if you mess with me, I'll bite your head off.
0: It's just a brilliant analogy, chasing the gator. And Isaac, you know... Most people, when you meet young chefs these days, they're covered in tattoos. It's hard to find a place on them that's not tattooed. And I never knew about your tattoos until you wrote Chasing the Gator. It seems like maybe there's one gator that you've caught.
6: Yeah, I've got uh, a big old tattoo on my back, which which I like it because it's hidden. Because it's almost, you're right, it's almost a prerequisite to have a a sleeve full of tattoos on your arms if you're going to be a chef. It's... It's more common than not. And I kind of like that it's on my back because you don't know it's there. It's it's completely covered my back. So the story goes something like this. Yeah, and then that big Cajun took off his shirt and his humongous tattoo there. <laughs> and the story will evolve some way, which is going to be hilariously convoluted.
0: Isaac, is there anything else you want to tell people?
6: I, I just wanted to say one thing, and let me see if I can get it right. Okay. <clears throat> this is Louisiana Eats <laughs> with Poppy Tooker.
0: Thanks, Isaac.
6: Thank you, Poppy. Anytime.
0: That was Chef Isaac Toops of Toops Meadery and Toops South. His new book is called Chasing the Gator. Is the best selling cookbook of all time? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Our drag queen brunch craze continues with the tales of the cocktail brunch at Two Restaurant on Sunday, July 21st. For reservations and more information, contact Katie at twojacks.com or call 504-358-4905. And then Help our friend, the one and only Amanda Toops, yes, that's Isaac's wife, celebrate her 40th birthday with a charity brunch at Toops South on Sunday, July 28th. Call Toop South at 504-304-2147 and reserve your seat to say happy birthday, Amanda. The food will be delicious. The queens will be lovely. The mimosas are bottomless. And remember, all of my Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunches benefit the Food for Friends program at Crescent Care and are appropriate for the whole family. So join us for a rollicking good time and do good while having some summertime fun. For more details, visit poppytucker.com. And now back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the best-selling cookbook of all time? That's not a question easily answered. Books that appear on most top ten lists include Julia Child's classic, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, the New York Times cookbook by Craig Claiborne, and Deborah Madison's epic, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. But perhaps the most important cookbook in the American canon is Irma S. Rombauer's Joy of Cooking. After her husband's suicide, Irma created a career for herself by self-publishing the first edition of Joy in 1931. By 1936, publisher Bob's Merrill printed a second edition, and it was off to the races for Irma and her passion project. A third edition was published in 1943, reflecting culinary changes of the time. Then, The Joy of Cooking became a family affair in 1951 when Irma's daughter, Marion Rombauer Becker, became co-author of the fourth edition. Marion carried on with future revisions after her mother's death in 1963. The sixth edition, published in 1975, became the all-time most popular version of the classic cookbook with more than six million copies sold. That version is over a 1,000 pages long, with over 4,300 recipes. Marion passed away in 1976, but her son, Ethan Becker, picked up the family torch and authored the 75th anniversary edition of The Joy of Cooking, which was published in 2006. The story of the Rombauer-Becker family and their massive body of work is so compelling that in 2003, Ann Mendelssohn authored Stand Facing the Stove, an amazing memoir of the cookbook that helped shape American food as we know it today. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
5: Hi, I'm Nick Sharma, author for Brown Table, and I'm also a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle.
0: As a child, Nick Sharma dreamt of a culinary career. But first, he appeased his parents' desire to see him in a more stable profession. Biomedical research filled that bill. But before long, the kitchen and what he calls the Brown Table lured him back. We spoke with Nick about that evolution and his first cookbook, Season.
5: So I was never really sure if I wanted to write a cookbook. And when I said I did, I really wanted something new to tell people. First of all, I'm introducing myself to a whole new audience, to the world, basically. And so I wanted to tell the story of what it was for me, why I moved from India to America. I'm an immigrant. I'm also gay. Uh, Why America was my second home. And it became my second home. And so I wanted to tell that story, but also tell that through food, because food was one of the elements that kind of tied everything together for me. I was connecting my past with my present and my future. And I wanted to put that all together in a book and do it in my way.
0: Would you tell us the story of how you happened to become involved with food? Because... Life didn't really start out that way, and your family really wasn't thinking that that was the life that you were going to lead.
5: Yeah, um, that wasn't the plan at all. I always loved to cook. One of the things that I found about cooking was it was very experimentive. You could do what you want. You could change things, and you'd land up with something that tasted good or it tasted bad, but it was still exciting. And I wanted to go to culinary school as a kid. My parents said no, because they said that's just not a stable career. And as an adult now, I see that it is it is true. It's a high-risk career. Uh, they were looking out for me. And so I went into something that was much more stable. I went into biomedical research. Um, <laughs> not
0: really much like cooking. <laughs> no.
5: But funny enough, all those skills have now helped me become a better cook, understand what's going on in the kitchen. And so... I feel like I've learned a lot, which is exciting. And then I moved to America uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, I came for grad school. And when I was in grad school, I had a very limited budget. And one of the things I realized that living in America, it's such a diverse nation. And one of the exciting things is you have restaurants from families that have come from Italy, from Greece, from France. And that was my way on a limited budget to see the world. And so I started eating out, trying to learn what was going on. And it drew me in. It was the seduction of food, to be honest. I left grad school and went to D.C., where I worked at Georgetown Hospital for the longest time. And over there, I started the blog because my friend said, there's this thing called blogs. You should do a food blog because you like to cook and your recipes are fun. So I said, well, it sounds like a lot of work, to be honest. And it is. But that's what I did. I went ahead and started a blog called A Brown Table. I love the process of cooking as much as I like the ingredients and the final dish, which is why I left my job in science to go into cooking. And so I really like portraying instructions so people learn visually, uh, because sometimes when I've read through recipes, I find it hard sometimes to understand what's actually going on, what the next step is. And so I wanted to do instructions, but do it in a beautiful way for people to understand.
0: I'd like to talk about the actual food. Okay, let's do that. It's, you know everyone knows you're East Indian and, you know, what your origin is. And so you would expect to have certainly a little Indian influence in the book, which there's no curry.
5: There's no curry. It's intentional.
0: Explain that.
5: To be honest, when I moved to America, one of the things I learned that, and this was new to me, having never been in the West before, there is a very stereotypical menu when you go to an Indian restaurant. Uh, With curries, I feel that every time You hear Indian food, you hear curries. And so I said, "It I've always said it's a little frustrating for me to hear that because there's so much more that my country has to, well, my former country has to offer. But if I'm always getting frustrated, I'm really not contributing to the conversation to make change. And so I said, if I'm going to do a book, I'll do it in my way, and make a conscious decision to avoid curries because there are people who have already done that, like Madhu Jaffrey's done an excellent job. Um, I'm not contributing anything new at this point to the conversation.
0: What are the most traditional Indian foods that we might find in your book? What, what, what did you cook that was traditional? So I did,
5: okay, so I did put the naan in there uh, because I wanted to have fun with it. So I did like a pizza and then I used the naan as tortilla, like you would tortilla chips in uh, like the Mexicans do in the sopa. But one of the things I did uh, in the book was to introduce food from my mom's side of the family. My mom's going and so their food is heavily Portuguese-influenced. So if you look, there's a recipe for potato chops where it's basically mashed potatoes with flavored ground meat that's seasoned and spiced, and you put that in, and you make this little pocket. Um, and it's amazing. I mean, I, I don't mm. know why people don't have that on menus.
0: You are just such a reflection of your life as an American immigrant and the things that you have just picked up. Like, I love that you've got a meatloaf recipe. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I, okay, so I learned about meatloaf through my husband and his family, um, and that's something that he loves to make at home. I think when we first started dating, that's what he made me once. Um, he doesn't cook a lot now because I do it all. But... um it's such a beautiful recipe. It's like a sponge. I think of recipes sometimes as sponges where they can be adapted and manipulated to what you want. And that's the same thing with that. So I could use pomegranate molasses, which I've done um, in a lot of the recipes and in the meatloaf. Um, You know, you can add spices and flavor. it. You can make things your own. And even with the book, that's what I want people to finally at the end of the day to go with it. Take my recipes and make them your own. And that's what people should do in their kitchen. Don't be stifled by tradition or instructions because rules, I feel, are always meant to be broken.
0: Now, I think a lot of people might be intimidated by the use of spices, the number of spices, unfamiliar ingredients that um, tend to be a hallmark of Indian cuisine. Mm -hmm. How would you want everyone to approach that and how did you approach it in the book?
5: I use this an analogy. We're always afraid of things we don't know. And that was the thing, even with with me being gay, I always felt that people were afraid of who gay people are. And unless you get to know someone, it's, it's difficult to make that thing because you have all these preconceived notions. The same thing with spices. But one of the things I did with the book, if you flip through the early pages of the book, I created a flavor spice glossary, which basically shows you macro photos that I together, close up, so you know what they look like. Because a lot of seeds also look similar, like cumin and fennel. They do have the same shape. The colors are different. They taste and smell different. So I try to make it easy where you just have a sentence on a spice. You kind of know what it is. But I also feel people who live in the south are probably the most well adapted and also the most knowledgeable people on spices in the country. Because this is where like New Orleans, for example, is known for its flavorful food.
0: Thank you so much for making the time to sit down and tell us your story and talk to us about your beautiful book. Congratulations, Thank Nick. you.
5: Absolutely. Thank you for having me today.
0: That was Nick Sharma, author of Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mullidoux. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.